everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, the FBI-loving knockwriter? What? I like the FBI now? What? That's weird. Uh, on today's episode, as you, Corey, is hinting at, we've got a couple news stories involving the FBI and law enforcement as a whole, including a massive bust of over 800 individuals thanks to an operation known as Trojan Shield. Uh, then we'll go into some updates on some massive, recent massive ransomware attacks and end with an indicted individual responsible for one of the largest botnet attacks in recent memory. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and skip on in. Are we doing the, the what is it? Uh, why can't I think of the name? Somewhere Over the Rainbow. The Wizard of Oz skip. It's slightly okay. different than the normal skip. Good enough. So we're going to start today with a pretty dang interesting story, if I can say so right off the bat. Uh, the U.S. FBI, in partnership with Australian and various European law enforcement agencies, announced last week that they had arrested over 800 individuals thanks to a global operation known as Trojan Shield. Which, pausing for a second, in terms of like operation names... For law enforcement, like they've come up with significantly better ones than Trojan Shield. But I guess this one is at least kind of fitting once we get into the meat of exactly what this operation was. Uh, so the multi-year operation involved uh, custom cell phones purchased on black markets that used an FBI-created and controlled encrypted communication platform that they called ANOM, A-N-O-M. Uh, the FBI had created this platform and then paid a collaborator to help promote it on underground circles, where it then quickly gained popularity and use by various criminal organizations, groups, and people. Uh, basically, this platform it secured criminal communications with encryption, uh, like it advertised it would, but at the same time, it was feeding every single message directly to law enforcement agencies. Um, and with this announcement, the acting U.S. attorney uh, for San Diego, Randy Grossman, said, quote, We aim to shatter any confidence in the hardened encryption device industry. With our indictment and announcement, this platform was run by the FBI. It's pretty nuts when you think about this. Basically, for the last two years, they've been uh, selling this service, which wasn't cheap. I read it was like $2,000 for a six-month contract with it. Uh, to various criminal organizations and criminals on the underground, uh, basically as a criminal version of WhatsApp, like a way to encrypt your communications between each other. And they ended up having like, I think at most 9,000 or so different quote unquote customers of this application. And basically it was just feeding every single text message that these guys sent between each other straight to the FBI. And they were able to make drug busts along the ways. They The article uh, mentioned that they were able to stop a, a murder that had been hired through this app. And the criminals had no idea like how they were gaining this information. They didn't suspect that it ended up being this communications app they've been using the whole time. It's pretty nuts. It's pretty smart. It, it's not entirely unprecedented either. I mean, yes, for a mobile communication app, but this has happened to dark web undergrounds where... A takedown has happened, but uh, you know, the FBI or authorities in various countries find a dark web, a underground forum or sales place. I, I guess I shouldn't say dark web, but you know what I mean, an underground marketplace. 
uh, whether it is dark web or surface web, but uh, they technically take it down. They gain access and ownership of it and have probably arrested the, the owners, but the site stays up and no one knows the better. So I, I think there have been plenty of dark web mic, um, uh, marketplaces that have been taken over by authorities before as a Alpha way to Bay keep... is a big example of that. There you go. Uh, yep. And, and Silk Road, I think, for a period of time. Uh, so yes, it's 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 not an unusual tactic, uh, but it's a, a this this exact form of it, because we are talking about all these mobile apps that have encryption. This this form of it that required a you know a distributor to get a specialized piece of hardware to be trusted by organized criminals. It, it was a very novel and cool way to do it. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the implications, but. You and I have lots of views about cracking legitimate encryption, which we'll get into later. And I, I used to, one of my things is, you know, in, encryption is not good or bad. You don't just get access to it. There are other ways to do policing. And I think this qualifies as one of the cool examples of another way you can do policing creatively and legitimately without uh, affecting the encryption that legitimate businesses use too. Yeah, you're right. Like, so you mentioned the underground forums, like Alphabay was, I think the biggest one after the Silk Road got taken down and it ended up being run by the FBI for quite some time. And they were able to arrest quite a few folks uh, that were selling illicit materials on that marketplace. But like historically it's been, like you said, they take over an existing platform or something like a marketplace. Uh, no one knows that it's now the FBI running it, and they use that to gather information on the users. This one is really interesting because they basically, they developed their own product, which they then marketed to these criminals. And like you, my first thought was, wait a minute, isn't that kind of like bordering on entrapment? Like you can't, as a cop, go, uh, hey, you want to buy some drugs? You should buy these drugs from me right here just to a random person. I know they probably do that all the time, but that's basically entrapment when you are tricking someone into doing something illegal. Uh, but with this, like, I'm assuming they probably covered their butts and did it in a way where it wasn't that, where basically they could advertise it as, oh, here's a secure means for securing whatever communications you have. Just so happens that most of those communications are about illegal activities, but like, it's interesting how they, they managed to do this and stay around for 18 months is how long this campaign went on. Uh, I, so they mentioned they got some early luck early on where they had paid someone to start promoting this online, but then some big Australian criminal started using it and started promoting it himself because he liked it so much. Um, and all the while, they were shutting down competitors through takeovers as well. Like they mentioned, EncroChat and Sky Global are two, were two of the main competitors, and by shutting them down, their subscriber count tripled over that time. So they definitely they had a really good plan for this, and it seems like they reaped a lot of rewards in terms of uh, basically identifying and arresting people for criminal activity. Yeah. By the way, go, going back to entrapment, I actually don't think there's much chance of this. I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the law, but I think the TV kind of gives us a false idea of entrapment. But for, for example, in drug crimes, it is perfectly legal for a cop to pose as a drug dealer and offer to sell you something. Uh, they can't use unreasonable methods to persuade you. Uh -huh. So if I'm a, acting as a drug dealer and say, yeah, I, I have uh, marijuana and cocaine, here's how much it costs, that's okay. They and if you buy like, it, but they can't, no, really, come on, you should buy this. I'm going to shoot your you dog know, if you don't buy this. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the TV, and, and maybe, by the way, maybe that is a strategy from Hollywood combining with the police to make people think they have a defense they don't. But sting operations exist. There are things you can do. The other thing I was thinking there is this: they didn't name... There's a, I believe, a hardware and even app manufacturer associated with this, which the these authorities partnered with to do this, who they haven't named, probably for the protection of that company. But it, it sounded like, to a large extent, that that company made the app, and that company was somehow associated with getting it started, too. So I wonder if there's also one layer of separate. You know, I wonder if that company was part of the, the original distribution of helping it get distributed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We don't know all the details. But I, I like you say, I don't... I, I think they were probably very careful not to do entrapment because they're used to that being a defense. Right. And it can be a defense in certain cases. But I think uh, people actually assume that cops have a lot less capability than they, they do. You can actually pose as a criminal. You just can't use unreasonable methods to, to persuade someone. Yeah. So let's talk about that encryption angle for a second now, too. Like, we've... You and I are both very passionate about like uh, anti anti encryption. Basically, there's been a lot of political movement recently, and even over the years, of various law enforcement agencies and government organizations trying to quote unquote backdoor encryption, like intentionally weaken it, uh, force companies to design their applications in a way that has a backdoor that law enforcement can get into. Because they say that if you don't do this, we're not going to be able to catch criminals, basically. And to be fair, we we call it a backdoor because I think as a security industry, we 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 believe it feels like one. But even when you talk about a three key system, a system where it's not a backdoor, everyone knows about it. You know, a company could could make this in a way that everyone knows our encryption is encryption, but there's a three-way key system and and certain authorities have the third key. We still don't, you know, it, it's hard to do that because you're, you're extending the attack surface, you know, holding on to who has access to that third key to be able to, to, to be that backdoor, that, that third party that can encrypt anything. How, how's the government going to secure those keys, make sure the right actors don't use them? How are they going to be distributed? And they'll say, oh, we can just do this stuff. No, you can't. The NSA has been hacked and things yeah. have been leaked. I mean, just you look know? at that. Like, that's it, it's the just, it's, example. Yes. So it's, it's it, it, even though, uh, you know, the, the authorities say there is a nice legitimate way to do this type of thing, sure. But the legitimate way adds a whole lot more risk that has been proven to not work in many situations. Correct. Like I would say that the NSA is probably our most secure agency in the federal government just because what they deal with, the the information they deal with. And even they proved that they couldn't keep some vulnerabilities under wraps like through just partnerships and affiliates like they let loose some of the most damaging zero day vulnerabilities in Microsoft Windows recently. And we just talked about the Supreme Court uh, kind of overturning a precedent uh, overuse of the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. In that situation, a cop who had legitimate access to something, this quote unquote good guy, was doing it in a malicious way. So even down to the insider, okay, sure, let's assume hypothetically you could protect the keys, which is hugely in question. 
But what about the bad actors in your organization? How do you protect the access from the insiders? You know, it's yeah. What's to stop the agent from like spying on his ex girlfriend through this by decrypting all of her chat messages, basically? Yeah, and it it, it it's. It's just not tenable, in my opinion. It's business. The government doesn't have automatic right to the encryption we use for businesses. You know, just like the government doesn't have the automatic right to come into my house, they have to have some sort of evidence that gets them a subpoena to do so. You know, so, and th that's all we're asking. We love that law enforcement catch, caught these guys. And that's where I like this situation. When you don't have the encryption, these sorts of methods, and by the way, if you had this three key system with, uh, say, the Signal app, because by the way, Signal would be the last to do that, but let's say they did, it doesn't matter. The criminals are going to go to another app anyways. So it's much, much better to, to turn their tactics on them and socially engineer them to use something else or, or to find some other creative policing technique. That's the whole point of police and detectives and your job is you find creative legal ways to to do things to catch folks and it's this not is a going to be perfect easy. example of that like using yeah, yeah. your own app that you've developed and see i'm like it wasn't free they had to pay people to promote it had to potentially pay this company to develop it but just look what they got in terms of rewards like millions of dollars captured luxury cars guns tons of uh drugs like literal metric tons of drugs like they had resounding and success. Data and resources method. to to get so many the, the criminals they've already brought in, there's more to come. Cause now they're gonna be interviewing and making deals with those. There's lots of little other tertiary communications they're probably asking about. So this so in short, this is fantastic work. Kudos to them for doing it. I love it. But it's also proof you don't need encryption keys. And businesses, the, the sensitivity of just the normal encryption we use every day for good stuff is more important. And you guys have proven you can crack down when you get smart and creative. You have other ways of catching these bad guys. Yeah, I hope to see more of this type of work in the future just because it's, I mean, it's super interesting seeing it all unfold after the fact. I'm sure they didn't like the fact that they ended up burning this application now. They have to come up with a new way now. Um, but but like, the smart, the patience, the two years. Yeah. I mean, they've burned it, but I they they were patient and took their time, and they really got a great return. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. A uh, really cool story. Uh, ch but just about every major news outlet, like New York Times, Washington Post, have pretty thorough write-ups of this whole operation, and it's worth a, go a read to go check them out for sure. Uh, but man, I I hope. By the way, turn I even love the name. Even calling the app Anom, it's yeah. like a perfect name. It 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 doesn't even tip it off. It seems like the type of name you would expect of that sort of app. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, yes, it is better than totally not FBI communicator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, great work by law enforcement. It was across like like 20 different European agencies, Australia and the FBI. Really great job by all of them and keeping this under wraps for two years while they did it and successfully uh, infiltrating communications of a lot of criminal organizations. Please more of that. Please less of encryption backdooring. Uh, so moving on now, uh, we've got a few updates for some of the more recent ransomware attacks against large organizations to get through. And I guess we should first start with Colonial. So Colonial Pipeline about what, a month and a half ago now, um, suffered a pretty serious ransomware attack that shut down uh, oil uh, transmission, I don't know, oil transfer across the eastern half of the United States for a few days at least. Caused a lot of hubbub as people feared there were going to be gas shortages. 
Uh, I'll say I've gotten my entertainment fill off of Reddit of watching people do really stupid stuff when it comes to hoarding gasoline. Um, but they were able to get their uh, operations back online. We found out about a week or two ago uh, that they had actually paid the $5 million or $4 million ransom demands by the cyber criminals. Uh, but last week, U.S. federal authorities announced that they had recovered $2.3 billion in cryptocurrency extortion payments related to this ransomware attack. Uh, they said this was the first extortion payment recovered by a new Justice Department ransomware task force. And basically, after a federal judge granted the FBI a warrant, they seized the proceeds from a digital wallet that they actually had the private key to. So the warrant affidavit doesn't say how they got the private key, but they had the private key for this wallet and they were able to recover the funds from there. And it looks like the things like 69 and change uh, bitcoins uh, were the ones associated with the payment to the affiliate. So the person that deployed the ransomware, not DarkSide, the organization that developed the ransomware. So there's a bit to unpack from here. And I guess first thing I want to point out is like, how do you think the FBI managed to get a copy of that private key? So for those unfamiliar with cryptocurrency wallets, they're basically asymmetric keys, kind of like, you know, RSA encryption for regular web traffic. Where by, a wallet... by the way, are you sure it's billion? I, I, I've been parsing a lot here, but I think it's 2.3 million. Oh, did I say billion? <laughs> oh, I'm uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Billion it, would be a yeah. lot. <laughs> Uh, so and and while those by the way millions a lot too ransoms are getting up there but I don't I, I think combined ransomware has gone over billions. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, I, I, a single attack is usually, I think at most fifty million usually in the five to fifteen. Yep. Uh, so a cryptocurrency wallet's basically just a public and a private key pair. So your public key is the wallet address that you can send transactions to. The private key is what allows you to sign transactions to thus empty the money out and send it somewhere else. And so in order to drain a wallet or send transactions out of it, you need to know the private key associated with the public key. And in general, like people keep those pretty secret. They are private keys. Like as soon as you have that, yeah, they should. Yeah, you have full access to the wallet. So I'm trying to figure out like how the FBI could have gotten a copy. Of I, the, I, I mean, other than finding who it came from and hacking back, I think the only other, I mean, you and I talk a lot about, I think we've had our primers on cryptocurrency and that private key, if you're smart, there, there's hot and cold wallets and exchanges. And obviously, if you're smart, the majority of your Bitcoin is not in any sort of online exchange or hot wallet. You, you have taken it off there your private key is either only on your computers or in some safe printed out, right? But one way to get to it is by the services, the hot wallets or the, the, the services we use when we're doing transactions. So I, I'm I'm making stuff here, up here, Mark. I'm just uh, speculating like I'm sure you will. Just like but every episode of podcast, if... we're just making stuff up. <laughs> None of this is real. Speculating. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I presume it, it, you know, maybe this happened to be the amount they had in one of their online wallets because they haven't transacted it yet. And, and it could have some something to do with targeting that storage. Otherwise, the only thing I could think of is is getting down to the person that had the wallet, knowing where they are, and maybe using other, you know, red team hack back type stuff to try to gain access. But yeah, you, you, I, it's a great question. I, I don't know. They've not told us. You, you're a super uh, cryptocurrency expert. What's your speculation? I mean, so hypothesis? it seems like recently 
the federal government has gotten really good at obtaining uh, cryptocurrency back from criminal wallets. Uh, more often than not, like you said, they go through exchanges. Like any exchange that uh, supports U.S.-based customers has to comply with uh, FinCEN, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network regulations, things like identity verification, uh, reporting suspicious or large transactions, things like that, but also working with law enforcement when it comes to uh, warrants and subpoenas. And so they've had a lot of success going that route, where if a cyber criminal tries to cash out through one of these exchanges and the FBI has been able to track the Bitcoin, like they, the criminal hasn't done a good enough job masking their tracks by tumbling it or converting it back and forth from other currencies, they can get it out that way. Um, and by but, the way, even tumbling and back and forth from currency, well, I guess the back and forth can, from currencies is hard, but even transferring it to a million wallets technically is tr traceable. You have to have the, the fortitude to keep on following all those transactions. But we've said this so many times before, but I hate how the news is talking about this. They're kind of generalizing it. Oh, uh, I, I remember one commentator talking about Bitcoin is not so anonymous anymore. And I, I want to be clear, transactions on cryptocurrencies are at least within the same cryptocurrency is 100% traceable as it even as things bounce around by wallets. I mean, the more it bounces around or tumbles, the more paths you have to follow. But by definition, a public ledger is supposed to be public. So that's why you mentioned the FinCEN, the actual identifying the holder of the wallet that it ends up in is harder. And, and you also brought up, I didn't think as much about this. And this is where you'd have to make, you know, having one cryptocurrency move to another cryptocurrency, that's when uh, it, it gets less traceable on the actual local bit, you know, public blockchain of the one cryptocurrency, but might be traceable through the exchange transactions, exactly. right? Yeah. So that, my assumption in those cases are uh, they maybe like if they're converting to Monero, for example, like Monero has... Uh, the ability to mask not just the source and destination for a transaction, but transaction amounts. So my guess would be they take a step back and look at the actual transactions through the exchanges. Like they see, oh, something right around 50 Bitcoin went in here, and then these transactions totaling something around 50 Bitcoin came back out over there. They probably do some sort of analysis to identify it through that. Um, but yeah, they've gotten really good at tracking these and then working with exchanges. But they've also gotten pretty good at recovering cryptocurrency directly from wallets by acquiring private keys. And that's the thing where it like, makes me start to wonder how they're doing this. Like They're really tight-lipped. No one at the FBI has said what their methods oh, are so far. Correct. Method, yeah. like, like you said, it could be hacking back. Like I mean, the FBI is no stranger to red teaming efforts, it seems, especially recently. Like, crap, they went and logged into a bunch of people's exchange servers to remove a web shell recently, which some argue that might be a overstep of their bounds. But we also know that NSA and CSA, while they're supposed to only do it to foreign actors, there is known red teaming by government agencies to other countries. Yep. Probably a little more questionable if you're breaking the law to your own citizens, but when it's other countries, I guess it's <laughs> it's something we kind of accept. I've, I'm going to put on a, a massive tinfoil hat here, uh, one that would potentially win the tinfoil hat contest at DEF CON each year. But what do you what are your thoughts on the realms of possibility that they've found a way to crack uh, private keys? Like basically wow. Bitcoin, like it relies on uh, fairly, I think it's like SHA-256 or maybe it's SHA-512. I think it's SHA-256. Like what are the chances that they've, 
found a way to crack key generation and now they can reverse a public key back into a private key. It's a possible. Would they burn that on just recovering $2.3 million from one of these transactions? That, I don't that, know. that would be a huge thing, by the way. They wouldn't, we, we talk about not breaking encryption. And I, I mean, AS256 is what we use in our phone apps and our in everything. So I, I agree with you that you, you can't, things similar to that on lower algorithms that were really strong at their time have probably happened. You know, there's a period of time where DES, uh, yes, I'm Pop Pop Corey. I'm old enough when DES and Triple DES were actually, even DES was acceptable encryption. But there were times when it was known that the government could probably crack it in 24 hours while it was still heavily in use by many folks. So I, I guess it's possible. Uh, hey, uh, what was the name of that one company? Maybe uh, the, those crackpot cryptographic fakers from Crown Sterling weren't lying. Maybe it, not only can they crack crappy RSA old keys, but they, they're helping the government crack this. Yeah, that, that's a scary possibility. I I would put it as statistic. I, I would actually presume maybe more hack back there because I, I feel like that would be very hard. And also, if they knew they could crack 256 it, the uh, uh, encryption standard that we're all using today, which the government, I believe, still accepts for FIPS, even though I guess they're moving to elliptical curve. And I just feel like it would be a big enough thing that you would see government changing a lot of their encryption standards too. Another I, thing though, I don't like, know. So in order to, these days, like you can write down the actual private key or public key. It's super damn long because it's basically like a giant, hash like 248 characters or something uh but most wallets will instead print out uh i think it's like 12 or 14 words it's basically a seed phrase where you can take that seed phrase oh. and turn it back into the public i've printed key. out a full key but i actually haven't used a wallet that printed out the seed phrase that's yeah, interesting i think bip 39 is the standard but most wallets these days they'll print out i think it's about 12 words like uh an example right here which collapse practice feeds some open despair creek road against ice least uh, and where if you put those down, you can recover your private key. Now, those words are generated from a word list that most of these wallets come with. Is it possible that through some like government supercomputer, they just went through every combination of the word list? And now if you generated your key with Bitcoin wallet XYZ, they can basically they already have it because they know all combinations. That makes more sense to me because it, it, it then it, the true encryption method isn't cracked it's this extra implementation of oh how can i create this fake word-based hash for a long key and who who made that standard by the way did that standard you just mentioned what was it called again beep bip 39 was that did that go through the open crypto process where people test it like i feel like anytime you take something long and you make it shorter like a hash you're 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 kind of making it easier to crack so to speak and if, if that algorithm didn't go through all the open community crypto, maybe that is easier to crack than the encryption itself. So that that seems viable to me. Again, we're all we're speculating, hypothesizing yep. here, but yeah, I mean, it's my been a long factor time would I... rather them to have cracked that than the actual encryption used. Yeah, <laughs> the private I mean, it's public key pair encryption. Been a long time since I've set up a new cryptocurrency wallet, but. I know a lot of them probably come with their own word lists. Maybe they instruct you to use a certain word list. And it's entirely possible that with enough computing power, you could just go through 
compute yeah. every combination of that word list and then crap out a bunch of public and private And keys. in a lot of the cryptography mistakes we've seen in the past, it's not in the standard itself, but it's in some weird implementation added to or interacting with the standard. So I could see that as being a possibility. So yeah, I, that, I still think it's in the tinfoil hat realm of possibility just because we've seen no evidence of it. But it is an explanation of why they've suddenly gotten so good at recovering these funds by just using the private key to send the transaction back out. Um, I'm wondering if, like, because this was such a high-profile ransomware attack, maybe through court documents we will finally figure out, A, who did it, like who the affiliate was, and B, how they managed to get that private key. Because, again, it's also possible that they tracked down who this affiliate was uh, and just got it through some other means through them. Um, but I don't know. I feel like it's not the end of the story. No, but I, I do think it really has to do with, I, I mean, they did get the private key, which is it's a technical thing, but I think like I think they're getting smart with crypt, cryptocurrency on following the money. The one thing they've been good for with financial crime is following money. In, in any crime, you're going to catch bad guys by following money. And I think uh, they probably have had a decade delay in really understanding how to follow money in a very complex cryptocurrency world. But it's good to see them getting there because... You know, they've been pretty good at following physical bank transactions, even despite anonymity you can do in different states. So it seems like they're getting capabilities to do that in the crypto world too, cryptocurrency world. It's a pet peeve of one of my friends to shorten cryptocurrency to crypto, and he's right about that. It's just hard to say cryptocurrency over and over again. <laughs> it's starting to leak. Uh, but yeah, this was, and so this was the affiliates wallet too. So uh, with these ransomware as a service offerings the developer takes a cut off the top usually like 10 to 20 percent and then the affiliate the person responsible for distributing it at all is the one that gets the, the rest of the money and in this case it seems Probably like gets dark the side... majority usually usually the affiliate gets the majority you know dark side will get 10 to 40 percent depending on the scheme but either way i think what you're getting at is the problem is this this messes with the affiliate who, by the way, carried out the crime and is a good person we want to get rid of. But it doesn't necessarily affect, to, to me, the actual service creators. I, I would love to see Darkseid to go away. Yeah. I mean, to really go away. As we know, they've said they have shuttered their doors. <laughs> yes, they've said they have. But again, they're criminals. So who the heck knows? Uh, this isn't actually the only story with Colonial as well. Uh, so also last week, uh, Mandiant CTO Charles Carmichael, uh, who had been brought in to help investigate the ransomware incident, announced that the compromised VPN credentials used in the attack were actually comparatively strong credentials, but they've been reused on multiple websites. So basically, they were following some good password practices of using strong, uh, or not unique, but strong passwords, but because they had been reused, and potentially a part of a breach available on the dark web. It made it easy for criminals to use those and hop right in. Uh, you can also infer out of that that it doesn't sound like they were using multi-factor authentication on that VPN then, as that would have been another hurdle that cyber attackers would have had to... Pretty significant well. hurdle, one that very likely could have saved the VPN. I mean, as we've talked about in other podcasts, there, there are ways to defeat MFA. Uh, but Some by the form. way, this isn't, uh, this isn't web-based. You know, there's no session to hijack in this VPN, so it'd be a lot harder. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, we can still learn lessons out of this. Details are still pretty light on how it occurred, but we know they got in through a VPN with stolen credentials. 
And it seems like it boiled down to credential reuse was a significant factor in this breach occurring. That paired with like and lack of MFA, lack of MFA. And so, and it, it makes you think. And by the way, I'm not. Uh, I will say there's probably a little tiny credential reuse in my life, and that uh, there's these throwaway things you sometimes have to sign up for to get to a form that I'm never going to interact with. I'm just trying to read something that I will use a dumb password and then never talk to that site again. But uh, it, the fact that they use strong stuff shows you, like we, we, Mark and I have complained and bitched about credential reuse over and over again. And we assume that it's the average user that doesn't think about security that does it. But this is someone that had a strong password. So, you know, it shows that human nature, laziness, efficiency, whatever you want to say, it, it's sometimes hard to defeat. You know, if you don't have that password manager, if you don't have the password manager, you got to assume credential reuse is happening. No one's going to be remembering all the passwords they need to have. Exactly. And like this is another point of highlighting how important MFA is. Like like you said, if they were using a strong form of multi-factor authentication, there's a chance they would have been able to stop it right then and there. Um, like I, I, I would say that it's very likely. I think it would be very hard for someone to hack this form of MFA or, or, or say you were using AuthPoint. I mean, you would have a push MFA on your VPN. It's not a web app. There's, you know, one of the ways around MFA is to, if you can man in the middle of the web app, you might be able to capture the session and just piggyback on the session that's already been authenticated. If it's a text message, we've talked about all the different ways to intercept SMS, which is harder, but possible. But with our push, I, I just, it, it would be very, very hard to get past that Unless you had a user that saw, uh, hey, someone's authenticating from uh, where we're Sounds dark great. side Russia. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I did that two seconds ago. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so good lessons to be learned from that one as well. Um, I'm still really interested to see how the FBI got that private key, though. Uh, still, that's not the end of our ransomware updates. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about JBS, one of the largest meat processors in the world. Um, after they had been hit by ransomware, they were able to get some of their operations back up and running fairly quickly. Uh, but as it turns out, late last week, they announced that they had paid the equivalent of $11 million in ransom in response to the attack against their uh, operations a few weeks ago. Uh, and by the way, when we talked about it, it wasn't even clear that it was ransom. You and I, I think on the episode, made very clear that we think it's ransomware and it has all the signs, but they hadn't used that term in their first announcement. No. And so in this new announcement on their site, they said, quote, at the time of the payment, the vast majority of the company's facilities were operational. In consultation with internal IT professionals and third-party cybersecurity experts, the company made the decision to mitigate any unforeseen issues related to the attack and ensure no data was exfiltrated. So let's pause right there. Like, you don't ensure data wasn't exfiltrated by paying the criminals after the fact. Like, it either was or it wasn't. And if it was, paying them does not make it not exfiltrated anymore. It's not a time machine. To me, this feels like a, a, a badly done PR response where this is clearly double ransom data was exfiltrated and the only reason they paid the ransom after recovering was to hope that the hacker deletes and doesn't publicly embarrass them with that data i mean again this is speculation but like mark said data is exfiltrated or not 
And just because you paid the ransom to hope that they don't disclose what they've exfiltrated doesn't mean it wasn't exfiltrated. So I, I don't know why you would say that statement at all unless you knew this was double ransom and you knew data is exfiltrated. Especially because that statement's completely at odds with like the last paragraph of their disclosure too, where they said preliminary investigation results confirm that no company, customer, or employee data was compromised. So basically, like if they didn't steal it and you already had operations coming back online, why would you pay the ransom? And if you did that, why would you say to ensure no data was exfiltrated? It's like it sounds like whoever wrote this had no idea what they were talking about. Or there's something going on here that they just don't want to have become They're public. trying to lighten things with PR, but I mean, it's not a good response. I mean, it makes clear. I, I yeah, I, I I wish I knew what it was, but it's it's quite silly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like, yeah, I, I, that it just really rubs me the wrong way seeing to ensure no data was exfiltrated because it was or it wasn't. And paying the cyber criminals does nothing to stop that. Yes, they may not leak your data right now, there's no way in heck they're going to go delete it. Like they're criminals. They're not going to. How, how, how are you even going to get proof that they have? Maybe, maybe they would, but you're paying them for nothing. And frankly, the data is exfiltrated. It was in their eyes at some point, even if they delayed it, deleted it. So if you're trying to not have to do all the mandatory data breach disclosure stuff, right? I, I don't know what their motive is. I can't even imagine. But I'm 100% with you that this is... This doesn't seem like a transparent response. No, it does not. Um, and it was... almost seems like see, covering your ass or avoiding uh, a bigger problem. Exactly. Uh, that said, like, well, I guess they do technically have customers. They're suppliers. So I was trying to think of what kind of customer information would get stolen through this, which now that I'm talking out loud, it makes sense. Like, I, obviously, they have data that would be valuable, data that was valuable enough for them to pay to make sure that they retained access to it. But yeah, it feels pretty wrong about this. I don't um, know how they take payment from all these. Yes, the data might be their customer might be big suppliers, other big meat companies that are in locations that resell, distributors, whatever. I don't know. But uh, how do they pay? It could be credit card, could be purchase orders. So maybe there's finance information, routing information, credit cards, accounts. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'll say that like it's just my opinion, so... It probably doesn't matter a whole lot, but I've gone from last week being like, oh, wow, bravo. They got their operations back up in just a couple of days. That's pretty good to now thinking, OK, what the heck is going on and why are they being so shady about this? Uh, all because of a pretty poorly planned PR statement about paying this ransom now. So I don't know. It, and it, it also makes the, the first statement, which seemed fine bad, even worse, because if you you know when they made that statement, they probably knew some of this in the second statement. So it makes their first statement, you know, what we would have interpreted as a good thing, sound almost like lies and, and posturing. Yeah. I, 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 know, I, I know for reasons, companies can never be 100% transparent in investigations. There's things you need to keep private for the sake of your, your customers, your employees, your stakeholders. There's things you need to keep private for law enforcement. I think there's a lot of times you don't realize that when an investigation starts for any sort of attack, even the, the stuff you might later share as threat intelligence, you might not be able to share right away because uh, you know uh, the authorities you're working with are trying to keep that threat actor active or whatever. So, you know, there's reasons companies can't always tell you everything, but 
there's no reason for a, 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 this kind of shadiness level. And, it, and it's not just because we want, don't like the company being shady. It's because you, if, if data was exfiltrated that belonged to anyone besides JPS, it's, it's people publicly need to know to protect themselves. Yep. Well, I have a feeling that maybe a couple of years from now, uh, we're going to be in a very different world when it comes to laws and regulations about ransomware payments. It feels like the tide is slowly starting to completely crash over onto the shore. Well, we saw the executive attacks. order, and uh, isn't Biden in Europe supposedly either talking to or about to talk to Putin about? Not that that's going to do anything, by the way. But yes, it's now a, a thing that our president is saying. Oh, yes, hey, I will absolutely have my... My uh, citizens stop hacking your organizations. <laughs> he says from his horse. <laughs> Except with his shirt off. <laughs> yep. Um, anyways, let's move on to our final story now for the day, where uh, recently the U.S. Justice Department announced that they had arraigned a Latvian national for her role in developing and deploying the TrickBot banking Trojan. Uh, so an Ohio court charged Ala Witte, with 19 counts accusing her of participating in the TrickBot group operating out of Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and Suriname. Uh, so TrickBot, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast. It's been around since early 2016, originally starting as a traditional banking Trojan, uh, something where it would try and steal your credentials related to financial services, key log, things like that on your computer. Uh, later, it began adding ransomware as another module as well, too. Uh, we started seeing it uh, really start to creep up in our DNS watch service, actually, in just the last like year and a half or two, uh, where the amount of TrickBot command and control connections that we've detected and blocked uh, has basically just skyrocketed. And this is even after, uh, I think it was October of last year, when Microsoft announced they had taken down 94% of their command and control infrastructure. Uh, but as we've seen in the past, like a lot of these botnets are really resilient to takedowns. And if that 6% rain remains up, there's still a chance for it to spread back again like wildfire. Um, so these indictments uh, claim that her involvement dates back to 2015, uh, where she was responsible for writing code related to the control, deployment, and payment for ransomware portions of TrickBot. Um, I thought this was interesting because they actually managed to arrest her too back in Miami uh, back in February of this year. Like we see a lot of these cyber crime things where they're able to identify the people responsible for these malware variants and things like that, but they end up being like a Russian national that's still uh, in Russia, for example, where we're never going to be able to get them in to face justice in the United States. But in this case, it seems like they found the right person, potentially, allegedly the right person, and they were able to One get of the people. You know. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is totally random, but... I, we've talked about like uh, cliche portrayals of hackers, <laughs> whether criminal or, or otherwise. And there's pictures of Ala Witt or Witty, however you pronounce her last name, that you could find. And uh, I, I don't want to comment on woman. It's, uh, I think there's probably plenty of female uh, good guy and bad guy hackers. But she's 55 years old and she, it, it, she does not look like who you would expect to be a Russian cybercrime hacker. So, and I just think that's important because TV, Hollywood, everyone gives you this idea of, of what this hacker type, you know, a youngish, 20-ish, you know, hooded, clad, black-wearing, uh, white teenage boy or something like that. And 
that that's not the case. Like any that other or like organization, Carrie Ann Moss. From the oh yeah, <laughs> yes. So and it just it, it it kind of flabbergasts me to to see her. she's she's not who I would have even expected, and I I definitely wouldn't have thought of a fifty five year old woman being part of a, a cyber hacking gang. All right, like not even but like a it makes sense too. We have dude, like typically like you said, yeah, you know, a fifty five like year old person. You're right, yeah, young yeah. angsty kid in a hoodie somewhere writing all this malicious code seems to be the caricature that most people pick. And it's not the case in this one. And they managed to develop probably one of the biggest botnets in the last half a decade or so, I'd call it. Like TrickBot was very prolific, tens of millions of endpoints infected with it. Like they were very successful with it. Uh, it's interesting that she thought it would be safe to go to Miami at some point. Uh, like typically <laughs> with these malware side, offers, like I, 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 I can't see Miami or Florida being where there's a lot of scammy stuff going on. Sorry, Florida. I love you guys. Right. But I mean, typically with these massive malware authors, they tend to stay in areas that do not have extradition treaties with the United oh, for States, sure. yeah, let yeah. alone the United States itself. Like, man, she must have felt like she had covered her tracks very well before getting picked up by them. Um, Although, I mean, they a lot of the malware authors have to have local like like she is Russian or, Ukra or was it Latvian. Latvian? But I, I'm curious about her like visa status. Even though she is Latvian, she was she a U.S. citizen or had because I, you know, usually they're more in the mule or the expendable things. But some sometimes you do kind of have to have local folks for certain malware campaigns and certain malicious campaigns. So I'm just just hypothesizing here. But yeah, no, I, I do agree with you. It's much easier if you're sitting in, in Russia that doesn't have a exfiltration agreement with, with the United States. Uh, and yet often some of the agents, you know, do go to the other countries for reasons. Now, I'm betting that even if they do manage to have her cooperate and pop the names of other people associated with TrickBot, like they will most likely now stay in areas that don't have extradition treaties with the U.S. So she may be the only one we're able to bring to justice for this particular malware variant. Uh, as with most of these criminal port court proceedings, though, I have a feeling we won't know any additional details until like two years from now when we do an update about, oh, remember that one time that lady got arrested yeah. for TrickBot? Well, here's some more details on it. Details, yeah. I, would, I feel like travel, it, crime just seems like a bad business for me because... You know, the, some of the areas of the world that don't have extradition and where cyber crime groups go, uh, this is an excuse, in my opinion, for what they do. But they're places where the technologically advanced folks, the people with skills, aren't finding jobs that that have that 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 pay them what they might know in other areas, and that's why they resort to this crime. And then they suddenly become millionaires, but then they're stuck in a country where. <laughs> It's it's not really the country you want to travel to, right? You know, it's not the cool place where, where I mean, you, you I would personally love to go to Russia. I I agree with you. I would love to go to Russia, but I think if I lived in Russia, there's a lot of places in the world I'd want to vacation and go. And what I'm getting at is, I feel a lot of the times when we catch these known actors, it's when they finally want to go spend their money and they temporarily leave country to maybe not America, but to this finally going through three countries and they suddenly forget that the one country they're in actually has an agreement with the U.S. and pow, that's when they get nabbed. But it must be a hard life to kind of be stuck in one place. Like, yes, you're in a place where you're you're safe, 
But as you get <laughs> more and more wealth, maybe you want to do do more stuff. That, I think it'd be uh, you know, really interesting to see whatever system the FBI uses to track all these individuals. Because, you know, like anyone that they've identified as related to some crime out there, they probably have in a database that is now tracking all of their movement. And if they happen to like see, oh, they've got a plane ticket that's got a stopover in Amsterdam, Sherpa, then they know to go pick them up there at that airport. Like, And think about that, that OPSEC, right? It's not just where you're going, where you might know is safe, but it's all the layovers and the hops you have to go. Like imagine you and I have traveled enough that sometimes we have to be smart about even the, the transition cities in order to do things in certain times. But now that's another limitation for these criminals. Not only could they only go to a few places, but then they have to pay attention to how they get there. Yeah, it's but yeah, I, I presume that's all the airport security. There is probably some global system. They all cooperate for authorities in different countries, at least in the, the you know, the five eyes and the, the friendly NATO states. Yep. So in terms of practical takeaways, though, the good news is it does look like TrickBot is dying a slow and painful death. Not entirely gone. Active infections are still out there, but it is slowly going away. Unfortunately, like even if TrickBot was a really prolific uh, botnet variant, it's not the last one. And there's just going to be something else to pick up the slack now, basically. But this is so much better. All of, I mean, the theme of this whole podcast of actually catching, arresting bad guys, 800 by the first Operation Anom, you know, this TrickBot person, that will do more to stop cybercrime. You know, not only killing the money, but catching the people. If you just knock down the technology, it's going to come back. Technology is is... You know, people can reuse it and rebuild it. But actually catching the people, I love to see this happening more. Right, because then it disincentivizes additional people from hopping in if there's a higher chance of you going to prison now. Uh, so, I mean, I guess that's our takeaway. Just don't do crime because crime <laughs> doesn't pay. We are The world seems to be getting a little better at catching you and, <laughs> you know... There's a period of time where robbing the banks was big in the U.S. until we got sick of it. And you guys are pissing the world off. You're going to pay the price. Or maybe takeaway number two, avoid Miami. <laughs> I love, by the way, Miami is a cool city. We kid, we kid. Just local humor. Yep, sure. Miami is a tolerable city. It's too hot. It's too humid. I, I love to visit. I love sun. But my goodness, I prefer dry heat. It's so humid there. Instead, vacation in Tucson, Arizona. Sona, yes. <laughs> Sedona. Or Sedona. Cool. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.